0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The New Israel in Matthew's Gospel is the intriguing title of this new two-part episode by Brother James Walker. The first one is called Son of Abraham, and the second, Son of David. The Gospel of Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. Frequently, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament, drawing our minds to various episodes in the Scriptures. There is strong evidence that the Gospel of Matthew follows the Old Testament chronology. And whereas Israel failed our Lord Jesus Christ, he succeeded in doing his Father's will. These episodes constitute a most encouraging study. We'd encourage you to watch, listen and enjoy. This episode, this two-part episode is available over on Christadelphianvideo.org. Just search for The New Israel.
1: Why were the Gospels recorded? Uh, And seeing as we're going to be thinking about the Gospel of Matthew together um, this morning, um, why was the Gospel of Matthew uh, recorded? Uh, And the common answer to those questions, uh, the the traditional view, if you like, or the the common view, let's call it that, uh, is that the Gospels uh, were recorded towards the end of the first century AD. So for Matthew, that would be around about 85, 90 AD. Uh, And the reason that they were recorded was that the apostles were starting to die out and it was thought that it would be a good idea uh, to record their experiences with the Lord Jesus Christ so that the future generations uh, could benefit from reading about those experiences. And I have to say, brothers and sisters, that I'm not all that fond uh, of that theory. Uh, And it's because it, it tends for me to go against the reason why the rest of Scripture was recorded. We know, don't we, that Scripture is always written for practical reasons. It's there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, isn't it? Those uh, well-known verses, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Why is it profitable? Why does it benefit us? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so, The Bible is always recorded for a practical purpose so that the people of that time might benefit from it. So if you think about the law, it was given so that Israel could live by it day by day. Or think about the Psalms. They were written so that Israel might have a hymn book that they could sing as part of their worship every day. Or the prophecy of Jeremiah was recorded on a scroll so that uh, Jeremiah could use that scroll uh, to uh, share with people those things that Um, The Lord God had communicated uh, through his prophet. And so it seems to me rather arbitrary, brothers and sisters, uh, to say that the Gospels uh, were recorded just because the apostles were dying out. Uh, I'd like to suggest to you that there was a a more practical reason behind the recording of the Gospels. uh, And that's that they were they were put down, they were laid down uh, to assist the efforts of preaching. Uh, that they served that practical purpose as preaching documents. We know, don't we, uh, from Acts chapter one, that uh, the gospel started uh, there in Jerusalem and it soon spread into all Judea and into Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And I'm going to suggest to you that as that spread took place, brothers and sisters, there would be a requirement for a written document, for, for the gospel message, uh, to be shared with all of those people, and so the first requirement then would be for a gospel that appealed to a Jewish audience, uh, which could be used there in Jerusalem and in Judea. And so I would suggest to you that 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 rather than in eighty five A.D. Or, or whenever it is that people say Matthew was written, that it was actually written much sooner, probably not long after the the death, resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 30s AD. And it could be used uh, there in in Jerusalem and in Judea amongst the Jews to teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ and the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then as the gospel spread further and came to Gentile territory, it would be necessary for a Gentile gospel to be penned. And and so came the gospel of Luke uh, to satisfy that requirement. Uh, and then as the gospel um, went into the wider Roman world, uh, to the uttermost part of the world, it would be uh, necessary for there to be a gospel which appeals to Romans. And so uh, the gospel of Mark, with all of its Roman idiosyncrasies, was, was, um, was, was written down. And then following that, uh, the gospel of John, uh, written later again, but certainly I think before 70 AD, uh, and that was written for other reasons. Uh, But you get the idea, brothers and sisters, I think that the Gospels were written much earlier than perhaps some people suggest. And the the Gospel of Matthew then was recorded in the 30s AD to appeal to this Jewish audience that the Gospel message might be preached to them. Well, that's just another hypothesis. Uh, And we can't be certain, we can't be dogmatic about these things. But one thing is certain, that as we approach the Gospel of Matthew... We are reading a gospel which certainly seems to have been put together, to to have been compiled through the Spirit, of course, for a Jewish audience. Because wherever we turn in the Gospel of Matthew, we can see the Old Testament. So uh, one writer has has been through and uh, and counted 54 quotations from the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew or 260 or over 260 allusions to the Old Testament. And then there's that phrase which punctuates the gospel that we read, don't we, that things happened in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that it might be fulfilled. Uh, And it's referring to things which were spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament that find their fulfilment in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's that favourite phrase which the Lord Jesus has that comes out, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew six times, I think it is, that the Lord Jesus Christ says, have you not read? And he uses that phrase in particular when he's speaking to his opponents, Uh, and they're usually the the scribes and the Pharisees. And the answer to that question is, have you not read? Well, of course they've read. Of course they've read the Old Testament. Uh, They they know uh, many of these scriptures off by heart, but the Lord Jesus Christ is taking them back in their minds to the Old Testament and saying to them, in effect, well, haven't you read the book of Genesis or haven't you read the Psalms, for example? Because if you had read and you were thinking about those words, which you know oh so well, uh, then you would understand the flaw in the logic uh, behind the argument that you are bringing to me. Uh, so we can say, can't we, as we just look at some of those basic, basic statistics, that here is a gospel that is built on the Old Testament. That wherever we turn in Matthew's gospel, the Old Testament is never far from view. Time and time again, it calls upon New Testament ideas, New Testament allusions, New Testament quote uh, Old Testament quotations, rather. Uh, and so uh, Matthew is bringing these things uh, before us. And this would really, really appeal, wouldn't it, to, it, uh, to a Jewish audience. It would strike a chord uh, with them. Um, but there's something else, brothers and sisters, um, we can split the Gospel of Matthew uh, into five sections. And most of the commentators do this uh, because it's, it's really obvious. Um, and each of those five sections uh, 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 concludes with a signature phrase. So, for example, the Sermon on the Mount concludes with the phrase that it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings or the sending out of the 12, it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples. The first parables there in Matthew chapter 13, that section comes to an end with the phrase, when Jesus had finished these parables. Uh, And then that block of teaching in Matthew chapter 16, 17 and 18 comes to a conclusion with the words of Matthew 19 verse 1, that it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. And then finally, the Olivet Discourse comes to uh, an end uh, with the phrase, it came to to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So you can see that phrase or a, a variation of that phrase being used to bring each of these sections to a conclusion. And that's an interesting observation. But it's made even more interesting, brothers and sisters, when we see that this is an idea which comes from the Old Testament. Uh, And um, important blocks or seminal moments in the Old Testament uh, are capped off, come to a conclusion with that very same phrase or a similar phrase. So the the creation record comes to a culmination with the words of Genesis 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished or the tabernacle. The end of that record, we're told, so Moses finished the work, the law, There in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're told that it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished. Uh, Or there in First Kings chapter nine and verse one, we read about the finishing of the building of the house of the Lord. So so, uh, when Solomon had finished um, that work or the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, this house was finished or, or the finishing of the walls, so the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month Elul. So you can see how important events uh, in the Old Testament um, were were finished with this phrase. and Matthew's gospel uh, has taken this idea, this way of segmenting material using uh, this phrase uh, and it uses it now to to separate to segment the material, In this gospel Uh, and so uh, this Old Testament pattern uh, used very much uh, in this gospel uh, as a structuring method and Jews reading the gospel would see and would know this and understand uh, that the gospel had been put together in this kind of Old Testament way. Um, Just come with me in your Bibles please to to Matthew chapter 1 so that's that's, you know, an interesting start. But let's start to dive into some detail. I'd like to think for a moment about how the Gospel of Matthew begins. Uh, and it's there in Matthew, chapter one, verse one, that we read. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, and you may have a marginal note in your Bibles, brothers and sisters, against that word generation that Uh, It's the word uh, beginnings or the word, the Greek word Genesis. So that's interesting, isn't it? That this is the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And that makes us think of the book of Genesis. But when we start to think about the generation of Jesus Christ, again, that takes us in our mind back to Genesis because uh, Genesis is structured in that way, isn't it? Uh, There in that book, we have the generations of the heavens and the earth. The generations of Adam, of Noah, of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Tirah, and so on. Uh, that's what the, the book of Genesis is. It's a list of generations and what happens with those generations. Uh, and so that idea uh, has been taken from um, the book of Genesis and is now being used here at the start of Matthew's gospel to describe Um, the Lord Jesus Christ these are the generations of Jesus Christ so we might say that the Gospel of Matthew begins in the same way as the Old Testament okay that's a fairly simple observation isn't it but let's take that um, a little further brothers and sisters because I'd like to think now how the Gospel of Matthew finishes in the same way as the Jewish Old Testament. And I say the Jewish Old Testament deliberately. The Jewish Old Testament doesn't end with the prophecy of Malachi as in our Bibles, uh, but it ends with the second book of Chronicles and chapter 36. And it's there that we read about the commission of Cyrus, uh, king of Persia who tells the Jews in captivity to go back to the land, back to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the house there in Jerusalem and he gives them this commission and it's interesting to compare the words of Cyrus king of Persia with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ there at the end of Matthew's gospel in what's become known as the Great Commission and we can see some similarities between Cyrus's commission and the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ as he sends out his disciples and we're going to do this together on the screen. So Cyrus begins by saying Uh, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the the God of heaven uh, given me. And notice how the Lord Jesus Christ picks up uh, those words when he says to his apostles, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Cyrus then goes on to say to them uh, that um, they are to go back to Jerusalem and to build the house And he gives this reassurance, doesn't he, to the captives that the Lord his God will be with him. And notice again how the Lord Jesus Christ picks up on that idea as he's sending out uh, his apostles into the world to begin to build the ecclesial house. He says to them, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So the Lord his God be with him Well, I'm with you. I'm with you always. I'll be with you in everything that you do. Uh, And then again, we see the words of Cyrus, uh, let him go up. That's the command that he gives to them. And the Lord Jesus Christ picks up on this when he says to his apostles, go ye therefore and teach all nations. So just to put all of that together there in blue on the screen, uh, the commission of Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth have the Lord God of heaven given me. The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And Jesus will draw on those words when he says to his apostles, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we can see some very obvious similarities between the commission of the Lord Jesus, the Great Commission, and the commission of Cyrus. So isn't that interesting, brothers and sisters? Uh, We've got this gospel, which begins in the same way as the Old Testament, with the generations of the Genesis of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've got a gospel which ends in precisely the same way as the Jewish Old Testament. Um, And there in the middle, we've got all of this Old Testament styled material uh, with this phrase, um, you know, things were fulfilled in accordance with the Old Testament and, and all of these quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. So it's rather like an Old Testament sandwich, isn't it? That we've got this slice of Old Testament bread at the start Uh, And this Old Testament bread at the end and all of this Old Testament filling in the middle. That's the way that the Gospel of Matthew, through the process of inspiration, uh, has been put together, brothers and sisters. And I find that really rather interesting. Um, But, you know, the way that my mind works is is to say, well, can we take it further? You know, is it possible that we can look at that Old Testament filling in the middle and say, well, is there an order to it? Has it been structured and laid out before us through the Spirit in a particular way? And I'm going to suggest to you, this talk, would, by the way, would be rather short if, if there wasn't a structure to it. But I'm suggest, going to suggest to you that there is. Um, and that uh, the structure which Matthew uses to, is to show us the Lord Jesus Christ in light of the history of Israel. So the Old Testament gives us the history of Israel. Matthew will give us the history of the Lord Jesus Christ as a new Israel. And he will show us the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ in light of the experiences of Israel, or as one writer will put it. And this isn't a new idea, by the way. This is an idea which, you know, several commentators uh, draw on. Uh, But one writer puts it that this is a recapitulation of Israel's history in the life of the lord jesus christ but what's really fascinating brothers and sisters is that matthew follows the order of old testament events nearly exactly in his presentation of the life of the lord jesus we will find some parts missed out so it's not a one-to-one comparison there are some bits in the old testament that you won't find in matthew Uh, corresponding in the life of the Lord Jesus. Similarly, the things that are in Matthew, which we won't find in the Old Testament, but I'm going to show you, hopefully, that there is a general order, a general pattern to the Gospel of Matthew, and that is the order of events and the sequencing of uh, the Old Testament. And to do this, Matthew will draw heavily on types uh, from the Old Testament. So we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ, if you like, in inverted commas, play the part of some Old Testament characters. We'll see him, for example, as a new Moses, a new David, a new Solomon, a new Elisha, a new Jeremiah in the way that he shares in the experiences of those people. And and they're just some of the ones that we're going to look at. But there are others too. Uh, He's a new Daniel, for example, uh, in the Olivet Prophecy. We we can see him also in Matthew as a new Jonah, Uh, this, this idea uh, is pretty much everywhere you go uh, in the gospel of. Uh, OK, so that's that's the hypothesis. That's the idea in, 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 in its kernel, brothers and sisters. Let's dive in and start to see how this works. Uh, and if you're lost already, hopefully you'll very quickly pick this up uh, because it's, it's, you know it's pretty obvious when we get going. So come to Matthew chapter one and verse two. If Matthew is going to show us Jesus as the new Israel, okay, then it would make sense, wouldn't he? Wouldn't it to show uh, Jesus' roots uh, being um, there, uh, related to Abraham and that uh, who is the father of the Israelite nation? And that's precisely what he does in Matthew chapter one, verse two, that Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. So he's going to go back uh, as far as Abraham and show how that is. Jesus ancestry he goes back to the father of the Israelite nation and very quickly then we move on uh, to think about Isaac what do we know about Isaac and his birth well we'll just think about what happened Um, Abraham and Sarah were told by an angel weren't they that they would give birth to a son uh, and this would be a miraculous birth because Sarah was barren and and they were so old Uh, and that phrase is used isn't it Uh, about this birth and about the naming of the child, thou shalt call his name Isaac. And what's really interesting as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, brothers and sisters, is that that's precisely the way that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is described, that an angel appears to Joseph and he is told that Mary will give birth to a son and that this will be a miraculous birth. Uh, And if you come to um, Matthew chapter one and verse 21, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so that phrase is used, thou shalt call his name Isaac, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And, you know, that's not an an all that common phrase uh, in Scripture. Uh, And why is it used? It's used to associate the birth, the miraculous birth. Uh, revealed by angels of the Lord Jesus Christ with the birth of Isaac okay so he is related to Abraham the father of the Israelite nation his birth is described in terms of the birth of Isaac Uh, and then what happens next in Matthew's gospel well it's Matthew who tells us about the conflict between the Lord Jesus Christ and Herod and what do we know about Herod Herod is an Idumean king or he is an Edomite And that conflict as Herod seeks to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death, I would suggest to you, is a reenactment, a reworking of uh, the conflict between Edom and Esau and Jacob. You know, that hatred and that animosity and that conflict is being worked out once again. Uh, So we've gone from Abraham to the birth of Isaac and now we're seeing the conflict of Esau and Jacob being worked out once again, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, Herod being a new Esau, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you like, being a new Jacob. And then we might think to ourselves, well, what happens next? We're clearly following the sequence of Genesis. We've gone to Ab- from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And I'd ask you to think in your minds, well, who else are we going to bump into next in the book of Genesis? And it would be lovely if you were in the room with me and I could ask you these questions and you could shout out answers to me. But I'm sure that you're there in your living rooms shouting out to me, James, it's Joseph, isn't it? Joseph is the next person that we come across in the book of Genesis. And surely enough, the next character that we come to in Matthew chapter two uh, or Matthew chapter one and two is Joseph. It's him who takes centre stage. And lo and behold, Joseph is a dreamer in Matthew chapters one and two. And the word for dreams, which is used there, the Greek word onar, uh, isn't used in any other place in the New Testament other than the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah, it's unusual, isn't it? But it's true. Um, and it's only used uh, one in one other place in Matthew's Gospel outside of the birth narrative. And that's uh, later on to talk about Pilate's wife's dream. Okay, so if you want to go to a place in the New Testament that talks about dreams, it's Matthew chapters one and two. And Joseph is a dreamer and he's going to be warned by dreams, isn't he? And what's he going to do as a result of those warnings? He's going to take his family off into Egypt and they will be saved alive. And, you know, just look at those details on the screen, brothers and sisters. And that is a powerful Bible echo, isn't it, of what happens there in the book of Genesis, that Joseph is warned, you know, or rather dreams are given to Joseph. Um, And as a result of those dreams, uh, he can take action so that his family come to Egypt. And there it is that his family will be saved alive and will grow and will prosper uh, and will, will become the people. God, all right. This, this this great seed will develop. Uh, so we can see all of those details in Genesis now being worked out in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just come with me to Matthew chapter 2, please, and verse 14. Just one comment as you're turning there. You see this little icon on the screen, this little open Bible. Whenever you come across that in this presentation, I'm suggesting to you through that that you might want to turn that passage up. So let's have a look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. If you're sat there um, and feeling a little bit uncomfortable and thinking this is a little bit far-fetched for me, uh, and leave me, types aren't everybody's thing, okay? Okay. Um, If you're thinking that, um, then I'd like to to just read with you Matthew chapter two and verse 14 uh, and see how how we're being told here that we need to pay attention to these types, because this is one of the ways in which Matthew's gospel works and it's deliberate. Okay, so Matthew chapter two, verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and there uh, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of uh, by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So here Matthew's gospel is quoting from the prophet Hosea, and he's saying just as uh, Jesus came uh, into Egypt and then came out of Egypt, um, just as that happened uh, in uh, the life of Israel, so that now is happening in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, So Matthew is actually saying that that what happened back then in the Old Testament is a type of what is happening now in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying to us, prick up your ears to the types, because the gospel is doing this deliberately, It's deliberately making allusions to things that happened in the Old Testament and saying, now these things are being fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this gives us direct license to be able to do this kind of thing. In in fact, it's being strongly suggested to us that we take this approach to this gospel uh, through the words of Matthew 2 verses 14 and 15. Okay, so come with me to Matthew uh, chapter 2 and verse 16. So we've thought about the characters there in Genesis. Now we're going to come to the book of Exodus and think about the Lord Jesus Christ in light of Moses, because he's the next major character in the Old Testament. Uh, And in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, we read that then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And what does that remind us of, brothers and sisters? It reminds us of the experiences of the baby Moses there at the start of the book of Exodus and I put the words of Exodus 1 verse 22 on the screen for you there, Pharaoh charged all his people saying Uh, every son that is born ye shall cast into the river and every daughter ye shall save alive. So we can see can't we that language has been taken from Exodus about Moses and is now being used about the Lord Jesus Christ And, and Herod is like a new Pharaoh in the way that he is uh, persecuting the innocents, and the Lord Jesus Christ is like a new Moses in this respect but we can go on from there because Matthew continues to use uh, Exodus like uh, language uh, which was used to describe the experiences of Moses so come to ex- uh, rather to Matthew chapter 2 verse 19 but when Herod was dead behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for they are dead which sought the young child's life and he arose and he took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel so the coast is clear now uh, (coughs) for Joseph to take the family uh, out of Egypt uh, and to come back uh, because uh, they are dead which sought the young child's life. And just compare that, brothers and sisters, with the words of Exodus 4, verse 19 concerning Moses. The Lord said unto Moses in Midian, so this is later on in his life, but the idea is there uh, Go, return into Egypt, uh, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. And he returned to the land of Egypt. So the coast was clear. Uh, For Moses to return to Egypt, for they are dead, which sought uh, thy life. And that very phrase has been captured now Um, and it's being used about the Lord Jesus Christ because the coast is clear for him to return from Egypt and to come back to back to the land. So you get the idea, brothers and sisters, just through these technical uh, through these textual connections that the Lord Jesus Christ is being portrayed by Matthew uh, as a new Moses. Okay, so let's start now as we work our way through Matthew's gospel to think about the Lord Jesus Christ in light of Israel, to see him as a new uh, Israel. So Moses is sent, isn't he, to deliver Israel from Egypt. That's the next thing that happens in the book of Exodus. Uh, And they're delivered on the Passover night and they spend three days travelling towards the Red Sea. And it's on the third day that they pass through the waters of Red Sea at the same time as the resurrection took place. Um, and so they are uh, delivered. And it's First uh, Corinthians chapter 10 that tells us that the passing through the waters of the Red Sea was a type of baptism, that they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So that's the next thing that happens in the Old Testament, the baptism is of Israel as they come through the Red Sea. What's the next thing that happens? In the Gospel of Matthew, if we're working our way through the Old Testament sequentially, we would expect to see a baptism, wouldn't we? And surely enough, there in Matthew chapter three, the next thing that happens is that Jesus, the new Israel, uh, is baptised in the waters of Jordan. Okay, so we can see him sharing in their experiences. Uh, And what happens next in the Old Testament? Well, they come through the waters of the Red Sea uh, and they come into the wilderness and no sooner has that happened than they are tempted. So they're in Exodus chapter 16, they're hungry. And so, the Lord Jesus, uh, and so the Lord God provides them with manna. They're in Exodus 17, they start grumbling because they're thirsty. And so water is provided for them from the smitten rock. And then a little bit later, uh, they're complaining, aren't they? Uh, they're worried because Moses isn't there. And so they make the golden calf and say, these be the gods which brought us out of Egypt. We don't need Moses Uh, These are the gods which are going to help us and they slip into idolatry. Um, And it's later on, 40 years after uh, these events, that there they are on the threshold of the promised land. And Moses gives to them the exhortation, that is the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, And in that exhortation, he looks back on those temptation episodes uh, and he says to them, as you're going into the promised land now, Look back on those events and don't make the same mistakes in your lives. You're going to be faced with temptations. The same temptations that they faced, learn from their mistakes. And so what Moses does um, in the book of Deuteronomy is to look back, for example, at that episode with the manna and say to them, learn from it. Learn the lesson that came from that provision of bread. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord, does man, man live. That as you go into the promised land, you need the word of God day by day as your spiritual diet. And it's only by having the word of God in your hearts and in your minds uh, that you'll be able to prosper there in the land um, and to enjoy all of its benefits. So learn from that temptation. Uh, and then he says to them, Uh, Learn from the second temptation. Uh, You shall not tempt uh, the Lord uh, your God. So uh, just as they became thirsty and and they tempted him. So you're not to make that mistake. You're not to tempt uh, the Lord your God. Uh, And also there'll be times perhaps when you're tempted to serve idols. But don't do that. Remember the mistake of the golden calf and the lesson that came from it. Uh, And and remember that it is the Lord God and him only that thou shalt serve. So there is uh, Moses thinking back 40 years later to those mistakes and saying to them, learn the lessons as you face those same temptations in your lives as you come into the promised land. Well, what happens next in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, he's come through the waters of the Red Sea in inverted commas uh, in baptism. All right. And the very next thing that happens is just like Israel. He's driven into the wilderness as they were. And he faces the same experiences in that he is tempted. And he faces exactly the same temptations. Those three temptations that we have just articulated. And how does he combat those temptations? He quotes those words that, that, that Moses had spoken then or that Moses had recorded, uh, that God had given him uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. He quotes those words to the devil. So when he is tempted to turn stones into bread, he says, doesn't, doesn't he, uh, from Deuteronomy 8, that man shall not live by bread alone. No, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I am going to live by the word of God, which has been given me. And when he is tempted to throw himself over uh, from the top of the building that the angels might catch him, He says, no, I'm not going to do that. But instead, I'm going to heed the exhortation of Deuteronomy 6. He shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when he is tempted to bow down and worship the devil, that all of the kingdoms of of the earth might be his. He says, no, I'm going to resist that temptation. And instead, I'm going to obey the exhortation of Deuteronomy 6 and not worship idols. But instead, him shalt thou serve the Lord God, him and him only. He is the one that I'm going to serve and to worship and to obey and so there is the Lord Jesus Christ drawing on the exhortations from the past from Moses uh, to help him in uh, his fight against temptations he finds strength doesn't he in the word of God and what an exhortation that is for us brothers and sisters that we will come across temptations in our lives the same temptations um And how are we going to combat them? It's by having the word of God in our lives, isn't it? It's by reading it every day and taking it into our hearts and our minds and having it there embedded um, in our consciousness. So that when we come across these things, we're able to see them for what they are as temptations and, and, and to be able to bring to mind the word of God and to say, Now, I'm not going to to, to succumb to that temptation, but instead I'm going to turn and focus my gaze on the word. And I'm going to do those things instead, which the Lord God has commanded me. And the Lord Jesus Christ was steeped in the word of God, wasn't he? Uh, So that he was able to do this in his life. And that's how we need to be, uh, isn't it, brothers and sisters, having the word of God um, there um, permeating. Uh, through our consciousness so it's there to help us in these times of temptation okay so you've got the idea haven't you this sequential uh, referencing of the old testament in order uh, in the gospel of matthew seeing the events of the old testament unfold being recapitulated in the life of the lord jesus christ so let me ask you a question then what happens next in the old testament we've been uh, We've come out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea okay through the baptism into the uh, wilderness being uh, the temptations uh, the manor in Exodus 16 the smitten rock in Exodus 17 we arrive at Exodus 18 can you remember what happens next in Exodus chapter 18 well we've got the appointment of the 12 judges over Israel remember that Moses finds the burden of looking after Israel too much for him and so it's Jethro his father-in-law that suggests that appointing 12 judges might be an appropriate solution to help Moses with that work well what happens next in the gospel of Matthew we come to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18 and it's there that we read how Jesus begins to appoint his 12 disciples and it's later on in the gospel of Matthew In Matthew chapter 19 and only in the Gospel of Matthew that we're told about those 12 disciples that ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's whom the Lord is appointing there in Matthew 4. He is appointing those who will be his 12 judges. Okay. so Exodus 18, the 12 judges are appointed. The next thing that happens in Matthew is that his 12 disciples are appointed. Who will be the future judges of Israel? Okay, so what happens next in the Old Testament? That's Exodus 18. We come to Exodus chapter 19, uh, and that's a much more easy question to answer, isn't it? What happens in Exodus 19 that runs right the way through to the book of Ex- uh, to the end of the book of Exodus? Well, it's the giving of the law at Sinai, isn't it? And what happens next in the Gospel of Matthew then? Well, the very next episode is the Sermon on the Mount there in in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. Uh, And what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's like a new law, isn't it? Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ is being shown to us as a lawgiver. Come over to Matthew chapter 5 uh, and verse 1 and, and just think about the connections that we can make here between Jesus and Moses. Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and when he was set his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying so jesus is like moses going up the mountain um to well moses received the law jesus is the new law uh, lawgiver who's going to go up the mountain and give the new law and if you come to uh, matthew chapter 8 verse 1 at the end of the sermon on the mount we're told that when he was come down from the mountain great multitudes followed him so he's like moses going up the mountain to receive the law and coming down the mountain and the multitudes are with him there at the bottom and these two uh, moses like um, references form bookends don't they around the sermon on the mount around the new law and it is a new law isn't it we must use that word new about it uh, because time and again the lord jesus christ Uh, And I think it's six times in chapter five, he says, you have heard that it was said. And he quotes something from the law, doesn't he? But he goes on to say something new about it. But I say unto you. So, for example, he says, you have heard it said in the law that thou shalt not kill one of the Ten Commandments. But he goes on to say, but I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother there in his heart, um, he hath Um, he has committed murder already all right so uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is building on that that commandment and he's adding to it isn't he and he's saying that I want you to think about this more Um, there's the action of murder but what is it that leads to murder it's anger it's the emotion of anger isn't it it's motives and Jesus is saying I want you to think about your motives because if you can control your motives, you'll control your actions. If you are people who try not to be angry, and you know, if you can control the motive of anger, then you'll be people who don't go out and kill. For example, um, you have heard it said, I shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, whosoever has lusted after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her already. So there's Jesus saying, uh, all right, there's the act of adultery but what i want you to control is your lust it's the emotion and if you can control that then you will be able to control uh, the outcome the actions that come from those motives so there is the lord jesus christ building on the law the law was all about actions and there is the jesus christ saying i want you not to just think about the letter of it but the spirit of what that law uh, was trying to teach that it's about motives it's about emotions isn't it the law is about doing but this new law that the, the lord jesus christ is giving is all about the kind of people that we are brothers it's what the lord is seeking to teach okay i want to just make uh, a comment now about the chronological order or rather the non-chronological order of matthew's gospel so on the left hand side Uh, You've got a a, a sequence of events and this is taken from Fuller's Harmony of the Gospel and they're laid out in chronological order for us. And we're going to see how the Sermon on the Mount highlighted in blue there has been taken out of chronological order by Matthew and inserted in a different place. So let's just let the animation run and you can see how this works. So it's been taken from there and it's been placed there. So Matthew's got a different order a non-chronological order. Why does Matthew do this? Why does he take the Sermon of the Mount and bring it out of chronological order and insert it there in the record? It's because uh, the Lord you know, has inspired this man uh, to do this uh, because he is trying to develop a different theme, not a chronological theme, but this theme of showing the Lord Jesus Christ in light of Old Testament events. Okay, so let's come to Matthew chapter 8 now. uh, And we're going to move on and think about 10 miracles which are described for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And they're given to us in quick fire succession. So we have the the healing of the leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother in law. There's the storm on Galilee, which Jesus stills. There's the healing of Legion. He's not named as Legion in Matthew, that's in Mark. Jesus helps him. Uh, He cures the man who is sick of the palsy. Uh, Then there's the woman with the issue and Jairus' daughter and they come together. Uh, And then we've got the healing of two blind men and finally the healing of the demoniac. And some of these miracles are unique to Matthew's gospel. They've been taken and put together as this block of 10 miracles that follow one from the other. There's hardly a gap between them. So we we should see them as a collective whole. Uh, And again, let's just go back to this slide. And, And this time, as we run this animation... We'll really see how these 10 miracles have been taken from here, there and everywhere uh, in in the chronological sequence of Jesus' ministry. All right. And they've been brought together as a whole um, and and taken out of chronological sequence to develop Matthew's theme. So let's just let the animation run and you'll see this, that we've got one from the start of his ministry, one from the middle of his ministry, another from the start and then some from towards the end. Uh, one from the start, it's like countdown, isn't it? Some from the end, Uh, one from the middle, and so on, okay? And that's where uh, these records have been taken from, out of chronological order, brought into this thematic order, into Matthew's order. Uh, And we'll see the reason for doing that. We'll see the theme in a moment. But before we do that, um, I'd like to just think about Uh, A theme which runs through these miracles, and it's the theme of Jesus' authority. So if you come to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read that he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And the people are astonished by this because they've never heard a a person speak in this way with such authority the scribes and the pharisees certainly don't talk in this way the rabbis aren't as eloquent and authoritative as the lord jesus christ so they really prick up their ears when when jesus opens his mouth Uh, if you come over to matthew chapter 8 and verse 8 we've got this idea of of authority continuing Uh, this is the account of the centurion's servant the centurion answered and said lord i am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth; unto another, Come, and he co- cometh; and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. And the point is that that he's saying, I am a man in authority, but I recognise, Lord, that you have a greater authority. Okay. And what is it that a man in authority says? Well the centurion there in verse 9 says a man in authority says go and he goeth and if you come to Matthew 8 verse 32 in the account with legion we can see that very command being used. Verse 32 Jesus uh, said unto them said unto the demons go and when they were come out they went into the herd of swine and behold the whole herd The swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and were perished into the water. A man in authority says, go, and he goeth. He says to the demons, go, and they goeth. They come out of the man and they go into the pigs and they're drowned in the sea. All right. So so this this very miracle then is demonstrating the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a man in authority who says go and he goeth. Come to Matthew nine and verse eight. And we've got this being stated explicitly. The end of the healing of the man sick of the palsy, we read uh, Matthew 9, verse 8. But when the multitude saw it, they marvelled and glorified God, which had given such power unto them. that should be translated as authority. It's the Greek word exousia. It's the same word uh, that we've seen previously. Um, So here, Jesus' authority uh, is being laid before us uh, again. And come with me finally to Matthew chapter nine and verse 33, that at the end of this sequence of 10 miracles, then uh, we're told that as he casts out the demon from the dumb man, verse 33, when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake and the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. Such is Jesus' authority. They have never seen anything like this before. So you can see, can't you, how Matthew was highlighting Uh, jesus authority emphasizing it for us uh, in all of these uh, different places but just come now brothers and sisters to verse 34 and notice with me uh, the reaction of the jewish leaders to these 10 miracles that jesus has carried out verse 34 "But but the pharisees said he casteth out devils through the prince of devils what a thing to say jesus has has worked these mighty works. He has demonstrated his God-given authority. You know, 10 times he has done this. Uh, that's, their, that's their reaction, that he does it by the prince of devils, how they will rebel against his authority, how they will not uh, accept him. Despite his 10 miracles, the Jews will not come to terms with, And the Lord Jesus Christ being the son of God and having uh, authority given to him by God. And where else do we come across this idea of of the Lord performing 10 mighty works and his people not accepting, but rebelling against uh, the authority that he has given to his servant? Well, where are we up to in our scheme? We've come through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness. We've seen the temptations, haven't we? We've seen the giving of the law, all right? Where are we up to next? Will the wilderness wanderings begin, don't they? They work their way towards the promised land. What happens next, brothers and sisters? Well, let's just read uh, these words from Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22 about what happens at that time um, in the wilderness wanderings, that all those men which have seen my glory And my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now, how many times? These ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice. Just as the Lord performed ten miracles before his people, through his servant Moses, uh, in many cases. Just as they witnessed those things and would not accept moses authority uh, so now this is happening again isn't it in the life of the lord jesus christ they're just like israel of old they will not accept jesus authority just as they wouldn't accept moses god-given authority and so the lord jesus christ is like moses uh, once again isn't he uh, and the people are making all of the same mistakes Well, the scribes and the pharisees the jewish leaders are Uh, making all the same mistakes that Israel made. Well, we come to the end of the wilderness wanderings now uh, in our sequence, uh, and we come to the words of Numbers chapter 27. Remember uh, that at the end it wasn't possible for Moses to go into the promised land and to lead the people there because he, he spake unadvisedly with his lips. He smote the rock twice. Uh, and so it was necessary for the Lord to appoint another leader over them to bring them into the promised land. And that's spoken of there in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 17, where they're told, set a man over the congregation which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out and which may bring them in, and that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And so Joshua is appointed to lead the people Uh, into the land and he's given the spirit to do this and he will appoint 10 judges uh, to help him with this work well what happens next in the gospel of matthew come back to matthew chapter 9 and verse 35 and when jesus went out uh, about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they, they fainted and, and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples that the harvest truly is plenteous and the laborers are few. Uh, and so the Lord Jesus Christ will go out now as a new Joshua um, and his disciples will be like the 12 judges uh, leading the sheep because they are as sheep having no shepherd, and that's what happens as we come into Matthew chapter ten. If we perhaps just look look at verse five, he appoints the twelve as shepherds to go forth and to, to go not into the way of the Gentiles or to into any city of the S- Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, rather is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Fre- freely ye have received. Uh, freely give, and so there to be these shepherds with the Lord Jesus Christ leading the lost sheep of the house of Israel, just as Joshua and the twelve had before them. And what happens next in Matthew? Well, in Matthew chapter ten, we come to the sending out of the twelve. And if I were, you know, use that that phrase, the sending out of the twelve, what does that remind us of? What does it sound like from the Old Testament? Well, it reminds me, brothers and sisters, of the sending out of the twelve spies. Uh, And when the the, the 12 spies were sent out, they were supposed to bring back a good report uh, and that was supposed then to reform, uh, to inform the people so that they might go out and begin the conquest of the land. But of course, that didn't happen because 10 of them brought back an evil report uh, and they listened to that instead. And so as a result, they weren't able to go into the land and 38 years of wandering in the wilderness uh, ensued. But Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 10 brings the sending out of the 12 spies and the conquest of the land together because they were supposed to be, you know, part of the same thing. They were supposed to go together. The sending out of the 12 spies was really just a reconnaissance mission, which was supposed to lead to the conquest of the land. And so uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will bring both of these ideas together now as he sends his 12 spies, uh, his 12 apostles out And in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 10, he gives them this exhortation and he describes their sending out almost like a military operation, like a conquest of the land. They're to take not the physical sword, but the sword of the spirit. And as they do that, as they go out preaching, they will face persecution and hostility. Uh, It will be uh, not peace, uh, but it will be a sword uh, that they are faced with. And they're to go from city to city and there will be times when they are rejected and they're to to leave those cities and shake the dust from their feet and go to the next city. And we might compare that with the words of Deuteronomy 13, which talks about them coming into the land and going from city to city as part of that conquest. And their message as they go out preaching is going to create turmoil as the conquest did. But they're to look for faithful people, uh, people like Rahab, Uh, And as they do this, they're given the reassurance that they are not to be afraid. Fear not, the Lord Jesus Christ tells them. And that same exhortation is given that was given to Joshua. Don't be afraid. Fear not, uh, for I am with you. Uh, There it is in Matthew chapter 10, three times the Lord says, Fear them not, therefore. Fear not them which kill the body. Fear ye not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows." And he's drawing on the exhortation that was given uh, at the conquest. Uh, Don't rebel against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Uh, Their defense is departed from them and the Lord is with us. Fear them not, or there in Deuteronomy 31. The Lord, he it is that does go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. And the same words are spoken to Joshua as they begin the conquest. Fear not and be, be, you know, be bold, be, be very courageous uh, as you engage in this operation. And there's the Lord Jesus Christ saying to his disciples, as you go to conquer with the sword of the spirit, don't you be afraid. So how was that message received? We'll come to, to Matthew chapter 11 uh, and verse 1. It came to pass when Jesus has made an end of commanding his 12 disciples that he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. So they go to preach. The Lord Jesus goes out to preach uh, in their cities and they all come back. And look at verse 20. We're told what the outcome is. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you... been done in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes and so they reject the message and the Lord Jesus denounces them uh, because of this you know this great message of salvation is brought um, from the mouth of the apostles the gospel message is being spread uh, and yet they will not reject it instead and if you come to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 16 and just read these words with me, brothers and sisters. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the market and calling unto their fellows and saying, We've piped and with my cats You notice that phrase there, whereunto shall I liken this generation? Why does the Lord Jesus use those words? He's likening them to the wilderness generation. There in Psalm 95. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation as Jesus picking up that phrase and said it is a people that do wear in their heart and they have not known my ways unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. And Jesus, by using that phrase, is saying, you're just like the wilderness generation of old that was faithless and therefore couldn't enter into the rest and woe unto you because you're behaving uh, in the same way. But let's just finish by thinking about the words uh, uh, there in Joshua chapter 11. Uh, When they uh, they entered into the land, they did enter into for a time a period of rest. Uh, Joshua gave for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes and the land rested from war. Uh, But we're told, aren't we, in the letter to the Hebrews that that wasn't a permanent rest and that there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Just to end this section in Matthew, I'd like to come to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Let's read some words which are unique to Matthew's gospel. And it's picking up on this idea of, of rest in the land. And, and that, that in the Old Testament wasn't a rest that had remained. There is a rest that is to come. And it is a rest which will only come through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point, isn't it? And Jesus is bringing that idea out now and saying, true rest comes through me, and here it is, come unto me, verse 28, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke um, upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden uh, is like, and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has made possible, isn't it, brothers and sisters, uh, that if we come to him, he will relieve us of, the Lord will relieve us of, The burden of our sins, a burden which is too heavy for us to deal with ourselves. And he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might be made right in the sight of the Lord. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has has made possible for us, to come into that rest, to feel rest and peace in our hearts, knowing that we are forgiven. And that was a which the old covenant could not bring about, did not bring. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, just to extend that, he's uh, going to bring in a rest when he comes, isn't he? A rest there in the kingdom. And that's what we look forward to. We feel that rest in our hearts now, knowing we are forgiven. But we look forward to the rest. That will come when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And i like to finish with, uh, just by going back to think about the miracles that we considered in Matthew chapter 7. Now, there's, there's a refrain, an idea that runs through all of them, brothers and sisters. Look at this for yourselves in your own time. But in each of them, apart from one, we're told that the people came to the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was Jairus, and his daughter was dead. His disciples came to him on the sea, and he would calm the storm. They brought to him a man sick of the palsy. He couldn't come, so he had to be brought. But the same idea of coming in faith is there. There came a leper and worshipped him. The blind men came to him. There came unto him a centurion beseeching him. All of these people come in faith, and the Lord Jesus Christ is able to help them. And there, in Matthew chapter 11, there is this summary statement to cap it all off, to finish this idea, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ says to us, come unto me, all ye that labour. Then we experience that rest in our lives and look forward to the rest that remaineth that will come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. What a wonderful thing uh,
0: that he has made possible. Thank you.
1: saw at the end of Matthew chapter 11 this uh, offer of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to come to him and find rest Uh, and that idea of rest continues now Uh, and in fact the chapter division is unfortunate Um, but it continues as we come into Matthew chapter 12 uh, because it's there that the Lord Jesus uh, speaks about the Sabbath rest Matthew chapter 12 is the Sabbath chapter I suppose. Uh, the Greek word "sabbaton" is used uh, eight times there. It's only used 11 times in Matthew altogether. So this is a, a, a chapter which concentrates on the Sabbath and uh, and develops this idea of, of, of rest, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who has come to give people rest. Um, before we uh, dive into the detail of Matthew chapter 12, I'd like to just um, use the screen again to, to show you Uh, where the three episodes in Matthew chapter 12 come from so on the left hand side again we've got events in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in chronological order taken from Fuller's harmony Uh, and this is quite a remarkable example of the chronological reshuffling that Matthew does Um, so the first event uh, is from there right from the start of his ministry Um, then the next event is right from the end okay Uh, and then um, we have one from the middle there okay so uh, these three events the man with the withered hand the blind uh, and dumb man uh, the uh, the discourse about brother sister and mother uh, which the Lord Jesus Christ gives uh, these do not happen in that chronological order there's one taken from the start one from the end one from put together in this sequence why because uh, matthew Shows abandoned to chronological order. Instead, what he wants to do is to develop this theme of showing us the Lord Jesus Christ and his experiences in light of those of Israel and the characters of the Old Testament. Okay, so as we come to Matthew chapter 12, what we're going to see is Jesus as a new David. So we've come in the first session, we've come through the waters of the Red Sea, the baptism. Uh, we've seen the giving of the new law. We've seen the wilderness wanderings, the ten rebellions, um, and seen that idea of rest, and uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do that. Um, and we saw how, didn't we, how during the time of Joshua, uh, they did not enter into a rest that remained. Uh, now, as we come to chapter 12, uh, we come to uh, Jesus as a new David, and you're perhaps sat there thinking, well, what about the judges? Where are they in all of this? Uh, and I suggest to you, we can find some echoes of the judges, particularly in Matthew chapter 11, but they're not as strong as the rest of it. Uh, so we'll leave that perhaps for another time. So we come to Matthew 12, verse three. Um, but he said unto them, have you not read that what David did when he was hungered? Uh, and that uh, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. So as this chapter starts, then Jesus is being likened to David and his disciples are being likened to David's followers. OK, so. Um, the the episode there in 1st Samuel chapter 21 is being evoked uh, and uh, that comparison is being made between uh, Jesus uh, and David and uh, David's followers and Jesus followers Uh, and um, we might we might just sort of ask ourselves the question well well if Jesus is like David um, and and uh, Jesus followers are like David's followers who are the Pharisees like? Uh, And I'd like to just sort of go back in your mind to 1st Samuel chapter 21 and just think about that day in Nob when David came to Ahimelech. Okay, who else was there watching over what was happening so that he could go and effectively rat out David to Saul? Who was the man who was there? Can you remember? Well, if only you were in the same room as me. um, And I'm sure that you would shout out Doeg the Edomite. Okay, and that's what the Pharisees are like. That's the way that. Uh, th- that uh, Matthew is portraying them, they're the ones who are popping up in cornfields. You know, why are they there in the cornfield, just waiting for the disciples to rub the corn in their hands and eat it? And you know, they're going to pop up and say, "Ah, oh, caught you!" You know, that that's it's kind of a ridiculous situation, but that's the way that they're behaving in this opportunistic way to try and uh, undermine Jesus and his disciples and all that they're doing. So they're just like egg, all right, spying on them. Uh, that they might go and uh, give Jesus up to the council. We might also see them as being like Saul uh, in the way that they are opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's reminiscent of Saul's opposition to David. We just come to Matthew 12 and verse 7. Uh, Jesus goes on uh, as he's speaking to them to say, if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Uh, and we know, don't we, uh, that that phrase there, "I will have mercy and not sacrifice is taken from the prophecy of Hosea. But what it's important to notice, brothers and sisters, is that uh, Hosea rests on the words of first Samuel chapter fifteen. We know the story, don't we? Saul is uh, is uh, instructed to destroy everything and yet he keeps back some of the sheep. Um, and when uh, Samuel tackles him on this when Samuel comes, Uh, Saul says, "Ah, but I kept them back for the purposes of sacrifice. So it was okay to do that. And Samuel's response is there in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. All right. So that's that's what Hosea rests on, on this on this previous event. Uh, and that's what the Lord wants. He didn't want the mechanical action of sacrifice for the sake of it. It wasn't the action, was it? It was the heart that the Lord was after. Uh, I, have, I will have mercy. I will have steadfast love or loyalty. That's what that word means. That's what I want from you, not sacrifice. And so Saul had this kind of legalistic approach. And it's OK. As long as we offer sacrifices, the Lord will be pleased with us. Uh, and that's not how the Lord operates. He wants the heart. He wants obedience. He wants loyalty, doesn't he, from those brothers and sisters? And so, uh, this is, you know, what the scribes and the Pharisees are being compared with. They're like Saul in this respect, right? Now that they believe it's all about sacrifice. Um, but uh, here is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, you know, "That's not what I want from you. You're you're behaving in the same way as he did." We come to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 14. Uh, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. And this is the first time that we come across anything like this in Matthew's gospel. All of a sudden, we're being faced with the murderous intent of the Jewish leaders. Uh, And why is this? Well, it chimes, doesn't it, with the murderous intent of Saul. Okay, so we've got this David, uh, Saul jesus and pharisees thing going on here in matthew chapter 12 and now we're being shown their murderous intent and how similar it is to the way that saul uh, sought to kill david so they seek to kill jesus just as saul uh, sought to kill david and then if we come to matthew chapter 12 verse 15 we can see what jesus response is but when jesus knew it he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all and can you remember what happens next in first samuel That Saul comes after David, doesn't he? And David has to move from place to place and Saul discovers where he is and he goes after him there. And and David moves to the next place and the next place. And the refrain that works its way through the first Samuel record is that David escaped and fled, escaped and fled, escaped and fled. You perhaps even got those key words highlighted in your Bible. And that's what Jesus does now as the Saul-like Pharisees come after him. He escapes and flees. He withdraws uh, and he goes uh, and multitudes uh, follow him, and uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that that um, just as David would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed, so the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is is like that. He he won't do that either. You just read on uh, in New uh, Chapter 12 and verse 17. Jesus withdraws. He doesn't confront the Pharisees. Why, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. So like David wouldn't lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. Jesus isn't going to take the bruised reed that is the Pharisees. I think that's what they represent. That's what the bruised reed represents. Uh, In Scripture, it's something which you lean upon, but it's unreliable. And when you lean upon it, it breaks and it goes through your hand. All right. And they ought to have been reliable leaders, but they weren't. And if you leaned on them, that's what would happen to you. But Jesus isn't going to take the bruised reed and break it over his knee. He's not going to lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed as David didn't. Right. Instead, uh, that's that judgment is for a time to come. Instead, the Lord Jesus is going to withdraw from that situation as David escaped from Saul. I hope that's clear. OK, so Jesus withdraws as David did. What does he do? The multitudes go with him uh, and they go to this place and he heals them. And it's just like the multitudes coming to David uh, at, at the cave of Adullam. Okay. Right, next, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 33. Uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. Uh, and then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. So that's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus uh, is described, uh, well, in the next verse we read, and all the, m- the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? So he's described as the son of David and the son of David can cast out devils and can bring peace to those who are possessed with devils. And that's really rather interesting, isn't it? Because uh, David was able to do that. He was able to soothe those who were possessed with evil spirits. he he's able to do that with Saul. Uh, So Jesus can calm those with an evil spirit, just as David calmed Saul. but. Uh, what do they do? Uh, instead, they say, verse 24, verse, uh, the Pharisees heard of them. They said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And they will reject him and they will seek to put him to death instead, just as Saul sought to kill David. OK, so we can see, can't we, all of these parallels. David, uh, Jesus is like a new David. His followers are like David's followers. And the scribes and the Pharisees are like Saul and Boeg the Edomite in their murderous pursuit of, de- of the Lord Jesus Christ. OK, just come then to, to Matthew chapter 12 and verse uh, 43. and we're going to look at what I think is a really interesting Bible echo that underlines this connection between the scribes and Pharisees and King Saul. So in Matthew 12, verse 43, we've got this, this parable which the Lord Jesus Christ gives. Uh, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. That's interesting, isn't it? This is all about rest again, following on from Jesus' invitation to come into him and find rest. Uh, the, the Pharisees are being likened to people who can't find rest. Why? Because they won't accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> and he saith, verse 44, I will return to my house and from whence I came out. And um, when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they end well there. The last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so, shall it be also unto this wicked generation? In other words, this is what the scribes and Pharisees are like. Okay, this is how it's going to end up for them. So let's just uh, distill out of that parable some of the key points. So the man goes walking and seeking, but he doesn't find, does he? And so he says, I'm going to return to my house. And when he does, he finds it swept and garnished. And the word garnished cosmeo means to be embellished with honour. OK, we'll see why that's important in a moment. Uh, and instead of his house then being filled up with good things, with positive things, uh, instead, his house is filled with seven evil spirits so that the last state of the man is worse than the first. OK, OK. So I'd like you to come with me now in your Bibles to 1st Samuel chapter 9, because we're going to see how how I think that the Lord Jesus Christ has built this parable uh, on the life of Saul. OK, and we're going to see some arresting connections uh, between the parable and Saul's experiences. So 1st Samuel chapter 9 and verse 3. And you remember the episode of Saul going out to find his asses. Right. So 1st Samuel chapter 9, verse 3 and the asses of Kish. Uh, Saul's father were lost and Kish said to Saul his son take now one of thy servants with thee and arise go seek the asses and he passed through Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha but they found them not uh, then they passed through the land of Shalim and they were and there they were not and he passed through the land of the Benjamites but they found them not and when they were come to the land of Zuth Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. So he goes out walking and seeking the asses, but he finds them not, finds not three times to emphasize it. Okay. And what does he do at the end of that? He says, I will return to my house. So all of the details are there, aren't they, in the parable? This was the experience of Saul going out walking, seeking and finding nothing three times and then returning to his house okay come to first samuel chapter 9 and verse 10 next um and um sorry i think i got the quote wrong then first samuel chapter 10 and verse 6 we need first samuel 10 verse 6 Um, So this is talking about uh, the uh, the choosing of Saul and the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, Saul, and thou shalt prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man. Right. So let's just think about what's going on there. What's what's Saul supposed to be filled with? He's supposed to be filled. We've just read with the spirit of the Lord. And he is therefore supposed to be turned and changed into another man. Okay who is a spiritual man who being embellished with dishonor uh, will will lead god's people in a spiritual way that is what is supposed to happen to saul he is supposed to be filled with the spirit of god but that's not what happens instead uh, of being filled with the spirit of the lord he is filled if you come over to first uh, samuel chapter 16 with another spirit so first uh, samuel 16 and verse 14 There, Uh, The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So he is filled now with an evil spirit. And I'd like you to count with me just how many times we read about this evil spirit which uh, fills Saul. So it's there for the first time in verse 14. If you come to verse 15, Saul's servant said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit from the Lord troubleth thee. That's the second verse 16. Um, We read there, uh, let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand and thou shalt be well. So that's the third time it's mentioned and notice how David is able to soothe Saul when that evil spirit comes upon him. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ is able to, to soothe people who are possessed with evil spirits that's shown there in Matthew. But the Pharisees won't accept it. And that's why they can't find rest in their lives. And so that's the third time. If you come to verse 23, it came to pass when the evil spirit from God, that's four, was upon Saul that David took an harp and played with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. That's the fifth time, the number of grace. This time the the evil spirit departs. Okay. Mm. That grace is momentarily shown and savoured by Saul. But if we come to 1 Samuel chapter 18 now, so that's five, isn't it? First Samuel 18 verse 10 is the next. It came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played. With his hand as at other times and there's a javelin in salt and he's going to throw the javelin isn't he and put him to death and he's not not interested now in being soothed by david that evil spirit has taken root and he is going to be resilient to anything uh, and come against david first samuel 19 verse 9 is the last this is the seventh and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house. The house is empty and swept and garnished and it's supposed to be filled. The man Saul is supposed to be filled with the spirit of the Lord and embellished with honour. With honor, OK, but he's not. Instead, the house that the man is filled with seven spirits um, <clears throat> and he is there sat in his house uh, with a javelin in his hand. As David plays with his hand and he's filled with seven evil spirits, so that the last state of the man is worse than the first. Okay, hear the Bible echo, brothers and sisters, it's amazing, isn't it? And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has based this parable on. And he's in in doing so, he is saying that, uh, as Jesus Christ is like a new David, okay, come to bring rest, come, come to bring peace, come to bring. Uh, soothing to those who are possessed with evil spirits. OK, power to do that, Power to change people's lives uh, instead of accepting that uh, they're going to seek to put him to death. And they're just like Saul. They haven't moved on at all. Uh, they're making all the same mistakes uh, that, uh, that, that uh, those people in the Old Testament made, made uh, King Saul included. Okay, so let's come back to Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> all right, so let me ask you a question as you're doing that. We're in the time of the kings. We've thought about Jesus in light uh, of David. Who is the next king then that we come across in the Old Testament? So we go, David, who's next? And I'm fairly sure, that all of you will say, be saying Solomon. Okay, all right. So now we're going to see, as Matthew progressively works through this scheme, uh, in the next part of the sequence is for him to show us Jesus as a new Solomon. And if you come to Matthew chapter twelve and verse forty to forty-two, that is given to us explicitly. Uh, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with his gen- with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and the great and a behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And just remember the, the queen of Sheba. Just put her in your memory for a moment because we're going to come back to her later but here's Matthew telling us now we thought about Jesus as a new David now we're being shown Jesus as a new Solomon but more than that a greater than Solomon is here Uh, and what was it um, that made Solomon great how is Jesus going to be greater than Solomon in what way will he demonstrate that well well Solomon's greatness was demonstrated in his wisdom wasn't he so there's a quotation from first kings chapter 4 Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt, and he was wiser than all men. Uh, and we're told how that wisdom was manifested. It was through his proverbs, wasn't it? That's how you could see how wise Solomon was, by getting his book of proverbs out, 3,000 of them and reading them. And then he would understand what a wise king he was. And his songs were 1,005, and there came all the people to hear the wisdom of Solomon demonstrated in those proverbs from all the kings of the earth uh, which had heard of his wisdom the queen of Sheba included all right so that's how Solomon was wise Uh, it was a god-given wisdom which was articulated in these proverbs and you know the word proverb in Hebrew is the word mashal and it is translated almost as many times in the old testament as parable parables are proverbs Proverbs are parables. They are the same thing, brothers and sisters. Okay. And the words that we use just disguise that fact. Uh, but, you know, don't treat them as being the same. Uh, Solomon was a, a man who showed his wisdom by speaking in parables. All right. So, how is Matthew now going to show us the Lord Jesus Christ as a greater than Solomon? As he's introduced in Matthew 12, verse 42, he's going to show us the Lord Jesus really for the first time now in Matthew chapter 13, speaking in parables. And they will really underline, won't they, (coughs) and emphasise the wisdom of Jesus. And we know them, don't we? The parable of the sower, the parable of the tears, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hid treasure, the pearl the parable of the dragnet, and finally the eighth parable, last but not least, the parable of the householder. And in them we see the great wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you come to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53, uh, this is the conclusion of this parable section, and we've got that signature phrase, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables. Remember how that ends blocks of material. In Matthew's gospel, well, here's the end of the parables block. He finished the parables, he departed thence. And notice what happens next. When they were then, when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph's. Uh, and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honour, save in his own country and in his own house. And there they are saying, you know, uh, isn't his, his father Joseph and his mother, you know, no. It's no, no, his father isn't Joseph. He's the son of God. And he has shown this amazing wisdom through these parables. He has shown himself to be the greater than Solomon, and there they are scratching their heads and saying, "How is it that this man has this wisdom? Because he's Joseph's son, and how's that possible?" But if you could only see, well, actually he's the son of God, then that would answer all of your questions. And yet they're blind to it, aren't they, brothers and sisters? But they're really um, amazing. Well, it's not amazing. It's a, a terrible thing about all is that what do we know about the queen of sheba she had come from miles away miles away to listen to the wisdom of solomon and behold a greater than solomon is now here and he's shown it through his parables and yet the people in his own backyard she'd come from miles away and the people in his own backyard and in his own country will not believe in him what a travesty that is brothers and sisters that Matthew is unveiling before us what a contrast they form with the queen of Sheba okay let's let's ask the question again then what happens next in the old testament David Solomon so we're going to move now to the time of the divided kingdom aren't we Rehoboam under Jeroboam we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah okay So let's think about the Northern Kingdom first, because that's what Matthew is going to deal with first in his sequence. Northern Kingdom, then Southern Kingdom. And he actually follows the king's record in doing that, by the way. Um, So in Matthew chapter 14, we're introduced to Herod the Tetrarch and his persecution of John the Baptist. Uh, Incidentally, um, he's going to tell us about events that happened a long time in the past but he brings them in now at this point in his record because he wants to slot this in and show how this develops this theme of the new israel so he persecutes john the baptist he's egged on by his wife she's always there isn't she in his ear um telling him what to do and he's too weak too spineless to stand up to her and as a result, he puts John to death. OK, so who does that sound like from the Old Testament? If we're thinking about the northern kingdom, who else Who else has a wife who's always in his ear? And actually, it's really her that's ruling over the kingdom and not him at all. Uh, and he's too weak to stand up to her. And as a result, the prophets of the Lord are put to death. Okay, Herod is like a new Ahab, isn't he? Uh, and his wife is like a new Jezebel. Uh, and she's in his ear as Jezebel was uh, pulling the strings. John, therefore, is like a new Elijah being persecuted by Ahab all over again. But it's Herod that's doing it. And we know, don't we, that fits perfectly. Just think about it. Because John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. OK. And so that persecution that he faces at the hands of Herod and his wife is going to match the persecution of Elijah at the hands of ahab and jezebel and that persecution um, will eventually lead to him losing his life in which he will become like a new neighbor okay so if john is is like elijah came in the spirit and power of elijah uh, which old testament character will the lord jesus christ play the role of next well who comes after elijah if we're literally following uh, major characters in the Old Testament, one by one in sequence. Who might we expect to pop up next in the record after Elijah? Well, you're all voicing Elisha, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to see as we come to to um, look at look at the Lord Jesus in Matthew's gospel next. He's like a new Elisha. So in Matthew chapter fourteen, this is the next set of events. We see the feeding of the five thousand. Just come with me in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter four, and we're going to marry that up with. Uh, one of the miracles of elisha and there are some uh, really compelling similarities second kings chapter four and verse 42. there came a man from baal Shelisha and brought the man of god bread of the first fruits 20 loaves of barley and full ears of corn in the husk thereof and he said give unto the people that they may eat uh, and his servant said uh, what should i set this before an hundred men Uh, And he said again, give the people that they may eat, for thus saith the Lord, that they shall eat and shall leave thereof. Uh, So he set it before them and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. And we can hear the feeding of 5,000, can't we, in that miracle. All of the elements are there. Uh, We've got, you know, even the same question. What, should I set this before 100 men and they should eat? And they have to give it to the people and they do and they eat thereof. And there's leftovers at the end, the fragments and and so on. All right. So it's very clear, isn't it, that Matthew, um, through the spirit, uses this record uh, to model uh, his account of the feeding of the five thousand. So the Lord Jesus Christ is being shown as a new Elisha in this respect. And what's really interesting is that feeding miracles characterize Elisha's ministry. He's the feeding prophet. That's what he does more than anything. Um, And so it is, as we come to this section in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 14, 15 and 16, the Elisha section, we might call it. Uh, So it is that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, starts to feed people. Uh, It's in particular here that we see this. Uh, So let's just think about some examples in Elisha's ministry. Uh, He heals Jericho's waters so that people can drink. He provides food for the sons of the prophets. Uh, He multiplies loaves to feed a multitude, as we've just seen in 2 Kings 4. He gives bread to Aramean soldiers. He prophesies an end to the famine during the siege of Samaria. This is the the, the man whose ministry is all about food and drink. And there in Matthew 14, 15 and 16, the Lord Jesus is just like that. All right. And his his miracles all have an Elisha ring to them. He feeds the 5,000, as we've seen. And there's this uh, question about eating with unwashed hands in Matthew chapter 15. Now uh, There's the idea of crumbs falling from the master's table. Then there's the feeding of the four thousand. Then there's the discourse after the disciples forget bread. All right. And, and actually in this section in Matthew's gospel, the Greek word artos, which is translated as bread, comes 15 times. Right? It's all about bread. It's all about eating. And it only comes six times in six other places elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, and actually most of those are in the breaking of bread record, all right? So this is the bread section in which Jesus is feeding everybody, just like Elisha had, okay? And this is deliberate, this is to show us the Lord Jesus Christ in light of that prophet. But there are some other similar miracles, so Jesus heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, uh, as Elisha had raised the Shunammites' son. And there are some really strong correspondences between those two miracles. Look at that for yourselves. And even the floating axe head, okay, um, you know, makes an appearance here. Uh, Peter walks on water, defying gravity, like Elisha's disciples' floating axe head, all right? Uh, and the, the, the phrase which ties them together is this idea of, of the reaching out of the hand, the reaching out of the hand to pick up the axe head that's floating, the reaching out of the hand to take Peter's hand uh, to stop him from sinking right when he's floating. All right, You get the idea. So there are other similarities between miracles in these sections. Uh, we can make some um Comparisons between the men themselves. So just think about Elijah for a moment. Elijah really was a loner. He operated by himself, like John the Baptist. Okay. Uh, But Elisha was a much more sociable prophet, and we find him being surrounded by his disciples. They're called the sons of the prophets, and they sit at his feet and and listen to uh, the things that he teaches them. Uh, And similarly, as we come to Matthew 16, 17, and 18, uh, we come to a section where Uh, jesus takes his disciples apart and they're like the sons of the prophets sat at his feet there's no one else around They go north to caesarea philippi so that they can have this private time together and they sit at his feet imbibing his word learning uh all all about ecclesial life Uh, and and it is ecclesial life that's the focus of jesus' exhortations at this time for those men um the the greek word ecclesia ecclesia okay is used only three times, believe it or not, in all of the Gospels, All right, So that might be a, a surprise to you. And all three of those occasions are in this section in Matthew. Once in Matthew 16, verse 18, and twice in Matthew 18, and verse 17. This is a section all about the Ecclesia, All right, Jesus has taken his disciples, like the sons of the prophets, apart, to teach them all about ecclesial life and how you ought to behave as a member of the ecclesia. And there are lessons, aren't there, about humility, okay, and about patience and about forgiveness and how many times you should do that and about the lost sheep and how you should go after the lost sheep in the ecclesia. Save them. All right. All of those those lessons are about ecclesial life. Are there condensed into this ecclesia section in Matthew's gospel? It's in this section that the Lord Jesus has his problem disciples. So uh, there in Matthew chapter 15, we've got them pushing the Canaanite woman away. Remember, she comes to Jesus because her daughter is ill. Uh, And uh, the disciples say, you don't deserve an audience with Jesus. And they seek to push her away. It's in this section that they're unable to, to cure the lunatic. Remember, Jesus is coming down the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples go ahead and there are some disciples who are there already and they are unable to work this miracle. They have to wait for Jesus to come and do it. And Jesus explains to them when they ask later why they couldn't do it. He says it's because of your little faith. Uh, So there are these problem disciples uh, and uh, those experiences match the experiences of Elisha with his problem disciple. With Gehazi, okay. So it's Gehazi who is like the disciples who pushes the Shunammite woman away and who says, Um, you know, you don't deserve an audience with Elisha. It is Gehazi who is just like the disciples in the way that he cannot awake the Shunammite son. He goes ahead, doesn't he? And tries to do it, but is unable to. And he has to wait for Elisha to come, just as the disciples had to wait for Jesus. And all of these. These events are in this Elisha section. They're all bundled together. Matthew's stacking up, feeding miracles and miracle and uh, episodes with disciples and other miracles too, and bringing them all together uh, to make all of these correspondences one by one with the prophet Elisha and with the sons of the prophets. Okay, so you can see very forcefully uh, how this is being done, uh, brothers and sisters. Okay, so that's the Northern Kingdom is true brothers and sisters what we might expect to see next is the lord jesus christ um coming to the southern kingdom of judah and we might expect to see some of the history of that kingdom now being echoed all right in the words of matthew's gospel and that's exactly what we find so come over to matthew chapter 19 uh, and so having finished this section uh, in Matthew 16 to 18 about uh, educating the Ecclesia, uh, we, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, and we read that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel, then, that Jesus is going to come into Judea come into the southern kingdom right everything else has been in the north the first time he comes to the south um, we know that jesus has been to the south on many occasions before john's gospel records them when he came to jerusalem for the feasts but they're not mentioned in matthew for matthew this is the first time jesus comes to the south why because he's going to develop this idea of him of, of him being a prophet to the southern kingdom right? so all of a sudden the sudden kingdom is, view, is in view. He comes there for the first time and he becomes like a prophet of Judah. And in, and it's at this time uh, that he is at his most denunciatory and he is like the prophet Jeremiah. All right, You can almost hear the words of Jeremiah in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as we work our way forward now in the Gospel of Matthew. And just to underline what I've just said there, come with me in your Bibles then. To uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. And let's just hear some of uh, the words of the Lord. So, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. Here is Jeremiah in the temple uh, speaking the word of God uh, to the people and criticizing them, in particular the leaders, for uh, their actions, for the abominable things that they are doing. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go you now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did uh, to it for the wickedness of my people uh, Israel. So there he is saying, you've made it a den of robbers. And look at Shiloh, because I'm going to do that all over again. And We come to verse 15, I will cast you out. Of my sight, as I have cast out your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. I did that once, Shiloh. Now I'm going to do it again because you've made it a den of robbers. You come over to uh, Jeremiah chapter eight and verse 13. Uh, The prophet continues, I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade. And the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. So that's what Jeremiah is saying as he comes to the temple. What do we find now next in Matthew's gospel as the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the southern kingdom? Well, as he comes into Jerusalem, as he rides in in Matthew chapter 21, what does he do? He goes in a Jeremiah like way to the temple. Right. And what's he going to do? He's going to quote the words of Jeremiah chapter seven. Um Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And as Jeremiah had said, I will cast, the Lord will cast you out of his sight. What's the Lord Jesus Christ going to do as he comes to the temple? He's going to cast them out. He's going to overturn the tables of the money changers and them that bought and sold doves. Okay, he's going to follow those things which had been written there by, uh, uh, recorded there, spoken there by the prophet. And as he leaves the temple, what's he going to do? He's going to curse the fig tree that no fruit should appear on it and its leaf will wither. Uh, And those words of Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 13 will be fulfilled. All of those things that the Lord had spoken through the prophet okay, are now going to be uh, fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's like a new Jeremiah coming to tell the people about the things that are going to happen because of the way that they are behaving. And, you know, the cursing of the fig tree. I think I'm right in saying this. But I should always add that rider that speakers should have. Tell me if I'm wrong later. OK, and I think I'm right in saying that this is the only destructive miracle that carries out. OK. Now, all of a sudden, he's talking about the destruction of the fig tree. Uh, that's going to happen to Israel in AD 70, isn't it? He's prophesying those things which are to come because of the way that they have rejected him. Well, if he's like a new Jeremiah, he's like a new Isaiah as well, brothers and sisters. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 21 uh, and 21, we've got three parables about vineyards. Uh, And the word vineyard is never used anywhere else in Matthew's gospel. So those two chapters are like the vineyard section. So we've got a dream section. We've got a Sabbath section. We've got a bread section. Now we've got a vineyard section. Uh, all of the vineyard references are are clustered together in these two chapters in these three parables. Just come now to Matthew chapter 21 verse 33 and let's have a look at one of those parables. And let's just pick up the connection with the prophet Isaiah. Matthew chapter 21 verse 33. Here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country just remember those things a vineyard a wine press a tower husbandmen right Uh, when the time of fruit drew near he sent his uh, servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits of it so he wants fruit from his vineyard but he doesn't get it does he He sends out more servants and more and 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 they don't uh, return with fruit uh, in fact, they're, they're put to death. And so eventually he sends his son. They will reverence my son, surely. But they don't. They seek to put him to death that the inheritance uh, might uh, be theirs. And in all of this, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is, is referencing the parable there at the beginning of Isaiah chapter five. I I've put it there on the screen for you. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill and hath fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choice vine and built a tower. In the midst of it, and made a wine press. You know, all of those features of the vineyard uh, uh, that were there in Isaiah. That's what the Lord is basing this parable on. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. So there is the Lord through his prophet Isaiah seeking fruit from the vineyard of Israel uh, and sending his prophets that they might appeal to the people that, that this might be so. He gives them every chance he can. And in the end, all that happens is they bring forth wild grapes instead. And the Lord Jesus, by borrowing all of those words and phrases and ideas from that parable and transporting it to his time, is saying nothing's changed. That just as the that generation of Israel was fruitless, now this generation is fruitless too and is bringing forth wild grapes to the Lord. They're not learning from the mistakes of old, are they? The, All of those those things that they did wrong are being enacted over and over again now. Nothing has changed. They're not moving on. They're just like the Israel and Judah of old. And then we come to Matthew chapter 23 and Jesus is there in the temple again. And he's he's saying to them seven times, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Uh, And we might uh, connect that with Isaiah as well. The seven woes of Isaiah chapters five and six. Uh, And clearly in in the way that the Lord Jesus denounces them for their weight, uh, the Lord has modelled this uh, on the words of earlier. So all the time uh, they're filling up the measure of their fathers, aren't they? They're acting in the same in the same way as Israel of old had acted. Okay, we're going to leave the Olivet Prophecy. um, And I'd like us to think now about uh, the trial and the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. All this is portrayed for us in Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to put some words on the screen for you and just ask you to think about these, brothers and sisters. Think about the way that these uh, ideas are used in Matthew's Gospel. Okay, and Many of them are unique to Matthew, and that's important. This is very Matthew-specific material. priests and the prophets and all the people took him saying thou shalt surely die okay to matthew gathered against him in the house of the lord okay this man is worthy to die they would say of him surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves if you go through with this plan you will bring innocent blood on yourselves that's what they are told all of those details are in matthew Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, but just look at the title, brothers and sisters, and answer that question. Who is this speaking of? Now, it's there in Matthew. These are the words of Jeremiah chapter 26. And what Matthew's doing is taking all of that language and applying it to Jesus now. And he's saying that not, not only is Jesus, like the prophet, come to denounce Jerusalem for its way, but he's going to be like Jeremiah as well in the way that he is tried, the way that he suffers, and in the way that he is of the Jewish leaders. Now he's going to suffer the fate of Jeremiah in this respect. Uh, who's this speaking of, um, brothers and sisters? Where, where do we find these words? Remembering mine affliction and my misery. All who pass shake their heads and and probably sat there thinking, well, this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is there in Matthew's gospel now concerning his death. We've moved on a little uh, and and we've got that picture, haven't we, of him there on the cross and then passing by and shaking their heads at, at him and mocking him and saying, if you're the son of God, come down of giving him those things to drink of his misery of the wormwood and the gall offered to him. You know, it's all there in Matthew, uniquely, actually, in Matthew. Okay, And yet these aren't the words of Matthew's gospel. These are the words of Lamentations, aren't they? And Matthew's taken the language of the Old Testament again. And is it applying it to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what is the book of Lamentations about? They are the Lamentations of Jeremiah about the city of Jerusalem. Now this is him bemoaning what was going to happen to Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, that not one stone would be left upon another, and there he is lamenting the fate of that city. And now in Matthew's gospel, you now all of those things which were due to Jerusalem are now being suffered for the Lord by the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's Jerusalem that deserves to to have the affliction and the misery and the wormwood and the gall. It's Jerusalem, you know, who who suffers, who should suffer the lamentation of of having people going past her and shaking their their heads, just as they lamented those things back in the Old Testament. It's Jerusalem, to use the the words of Isaiah 51, who should have taken the cup of trembling and put it to her lips and drunk it. And instead, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who takes that cup and drinks it, brothers and sisters, down to the dregs and empties that vessel and turns it upside down and says it is finished. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the sin bearer, who faces those things which Jerusalem deserved. And the lamentations are about him and all of the things that he will suffer on behalf of mankind because thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins and that's what he's doing there finally those words are fulfilled in the gospel uh, of Matthew Uh, so brothers and sisters we're going to bring things to an end now we we must ask that question mustn't we What, what are the lessons for us in all of this um We've seen a bunch of connections, haven't we? But what what do we learn? What do we take from it? What's our exhortation? Well, we've seen this bird's eye view of Matthew's gospel and how it's built on the Old Testament. We've seen this general order that's the order of the Old Testament. We've seen his relation to Abraham, his birth being like Isaac's birth. We've seen the conflict between Jason, Jacob and Esau in his life. We've seen Joseph the dreamer. We've seen him as a new Moses, haven't we? Um, going through. Are um, uh, leading the people and, and facing those things. We've seen him being baptized in, in Jordan as Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. We've seen him face the same temptations of Israel. We've seen him as a new lawgiver and giving that law, but also teaching the spirit uh, behind the law. We've seen the, the judges being appointed, the 10 miracles that they rebelled against. As they did in the wilderness we've seen the conquest of the land and the exhortation that he gives as he sends out the twelve we've seen him as a new David we've seen the Pharisees as a new Saul opposing the new David we've seen a greater than Solomon in the wisdom that he shows in his parables we've seen the division of the kingdom and the northern kingdom how Herod is like a new Ahab persecuting John the Baptist and eventually putting him to death We've seen the Lord Jesus following on from that as a new Elisha, like the feeding prophet, sitting down with his disciples and teaching them about ecclesial life. We've seen him come to the the southern kingdom and be like a new Jeremiah in the way that he denounces them for their ways. We've seen, haven't we, him like a new Isaiah saying, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you're fruitless as that vine was uh, back in those days. We've seen his sufferings in light of those of Jeremiah. And we've seen his death like the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple of his body. But what do we learn from all of that, brothers and sisters? How do we how do we take exhortation from it? Well, well surely in, in all of this, we're seeing a repeat performance, aren't we? We're seeing once again how they forgot about God. Once again, they're murmuring against him. Once again, they're rebelling against his miracles. Once again, they reject his authority. They seek to kill God's king. They reject God's wisdom. He sends his prophets, but they reject them and, and seek to put them to death. But here is the point. At the end of it all, brothers and sisters, we're thinking to ourselves, it's the Old Testament all over again. And we haven't moved forward at all. They haven't learned those lessons. And yet the point is that the Lord God would not leave it there. He would not leave it there in the death of his son, but he would raise him from the dead to give life from death and to give hope from beyond the grave. And that's what Matthew chapter 28 um, unfolds for us brothers and sisters that despite all that has happened the lord god is not going to leave it there but he will raise his son from the dead and he's not going to cast it off his because of what they have done instead he's going to extend his grace the salvation uh, brought to them through his son uh, offer of grace to them and we we are part of that aren't we brothers and sisters That's the first lesson. There are many that we can take from it, but, but that's one. The second that I wanted us to think about is that, that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. If Israel was the son that failed to please God there in the Old Testament, then the Lord Jesus Christ was the son in whom God was well pleased, that he did all things well. He was, and pardon the way that I have kind of turned this phrase a little, but you'll understand why. He was tempted in all points like as they were. You know, he faced every single experience. We've seen that almost ad nauseum, right? He faced every single temptation that they faced, yet he was without sin. So he succeeded where Israel failed. He was like a new Moses, like David, like Solomon, like Elisha, like Jeremiah. But he was greater than those characters. He was the fulfillment of everything that they started and, and everything that was revealed through them and everything that was promised to them. God's purpose that was not fulfilled in the Old Testament then is now fulfilled in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and will be fulfilled in his son when he returns. That's one of the great lessons that we can take from observing um, the way that Matthew's gospel has been structured. Of course, Jesus gained help and strength, didn't he, from the word of God in everything that he faced in all of those experiences. And he could see and he could learn from Israel's mistakes when he suffered like Jeremiah he could go to the prophecy of Jeremiah and gain comfort from it as, as they were rejecting his authority as they rejected Moses he could could think about what Moses had faced and, and be comforted and reassured from those words that's what scripture was able to do for him brothers and sisters that's the power of it and we same experiences in our lives brothers and sisters and we have as the lord jesus had we have the word of god we have more than he had we have the new testament as well we have the completed word of god we have the life of the lord jesus christ and all of his experiences so that as we face those temptations we can draw strength from the word of god that we might stay faithful to him that we might live righteous lives and that we might not mistake make mistakes that israel made of old it's a perfect example we have a blueprint don't we of
0: course we we'll fail to do that at times we have God's grace and God's mercy when that happens
1: oh, it's during those times and what a wonderful thing uh, that is for us all seek to walk together